Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. As you know, I go out to the prison every week and uh, enjoy my time with these men. And when we're out there, uh, you run into a lot of interesting stories. I remember one guy said uh, one time, and I, I imagine it's a common story, uh, not only amongst prisoners, but among many people who call themselves evangelicals, and that is this. He said, I made a commitment to the Lord. I remember the day I made it, but I didn't change, which means he didn't make much of a commitment. But he said, you know, I remember I went down. I remember the altar call. I remember I said yes to Jesus, but I didn't change my life. Then I came to the point later on where I heard this word. It was the word surrender. And when I heard the word surrender that day, I ran the white flag up the pole and said, I surrender. That's when I changed, when I finally surrendered to the Lord. Now, we're going to roll not down through all these Beatitudes. We're going to do one of them today. And it's the one that I want us to think about because at the end of this service, I'd like to have a time of prayer, a time of commitment, a time of poverty, if you will, a time where we recognize I am, like David says four times in the Psalms, I am poor and needy, and we're talking about that poverty as a step of faith. I want to be poor and needy. I want to cast everything out of my life so that I can be full of something else, full of someone else. And so we're going to talk about poverty of spirit today, the poor in spirit, And after this is over, I'd like for some of you, many of you, all of you, whoever recognizes this need in my life to come up and say, I pour myself totally out so that I can be full of love, so I can be full of Jesus, so I can be full of that spirit, so I can be holy, even as he is holy. So we're going to talk about poverty of spirit this morning. There are two words for poor, apparently, that could have been used here. Matthew selects words. That's one of the interesting parts about the Bible. Why select that word for this concept? Now, Jesus probably would have been speaking in Aramaic. So Matthew's writing in Greek. So he's got to say, okay, I've got this language I'm dealing with to showcase what was said over in this language. And that's kind of a tricky thing. So he says, hey, Jesus said poor in spirit in Aramaic. Now I've got to say, what Greek word do I use for poverty? And there's two that he could have used. One is penes. Penes means pretty poor. Or I could use tokos, which means absolutely impoverished, completely empty, destitute. It means fully dismissed. It means empty. And that's the word that Matthew used. That is, blessed are the totally empty, the ones who have poured themselves out so that something else could possibly happen. It's the first beatitude in that sum of all true religion we just talked about. It's the first beatitude when Jesus starts making his self-portrait. This is what I look like. This is what I want you to look like. Now, I think it's foundational. The reason we cover it today is we're, we're saying this is foundational for all the other beatitudes. If you want this list to come alive in your life, you've got to get this one right, and you've got to get this one first. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We recognize that that's what Jesus did when he came. Philippians 2 says this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. 
some translations, the one perhaps you're looking at right now says, he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a bondservant, being made, in other words, king of kings and lord of lords, and now I'm taking the form of a servant. I'm taking the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Extraordinary stuff. And Jesus says, that's what happened in my life. I'm asking you now to follow me. I don't know if you ever remember the movie uh, and the play upon which the movie was made called The Robe. Anybody ever see The Robe or read The Robe? Anybody read The Robe? Uh, it's a famous book, probably ought to read it. Uh, Lloyd, uh, Lloyd C. Douglas wrote this incredible account of what happens to The Robe of Jesus. And uh, in that account, there's an emperor named Tiberius who is musing to himself about this new, what he calls this new Galilean idea. And Tiberius says this. I'm going to quote it right out of the book to you. It might be interesting, he went on talking to himself. It might be interesting to watch this strange thing develop, this Christianity, this faith of Jesus develop. If it could go on the way it seems to be going now, nothing could stop it. But it won't go on. Not that way. It's going to collapse after a while. Soon as it gets into a strong position, soon as it gets strong enough to dictate the terms, then it's going to squabble over offices and spoils and grow heady with power and territory. The Christian afoot is a formidable fellow, but when he becomes prosperous enough to ride a horse, and Tiberius suddenly broke out in a startling laugh. <laughs> he said, when he gets a horse, <laughs> oh, a Christian on horseback will be just like any other man on horseback. This Jesus army is going to have to travel on foot if it expects to accomplish anything. And that's one of the pictures you get of poverty of spirit. We are willing not to have horses. We're willing to walk. And I'm thinking to myself, Lord Jesus, forgive me when I'm flying when I'm supposed to be walking. Forgive me when I'm on a horse when I'm supposed to be striding across your globe. Lord, forgive me for ever assuming that I need to be more powerful I need to have a better job. I need to have more money and have a better location. That's what I need. That's what I deserve. When, Lord, you were the God that emptied himself and became a slave. Forgive me, Lord Jesus. Help me today to empty myself out. Now, the way I frequently communicate this is, is tell people to go to John 12. In fact, if you've got your Bible there, go to John 12. I want to show you a passage here that is interesting and it is Interesting in light of just the words that Jesus says, but it's also interesting in light of what perhaps was happening when he said it. And we don't know what was happening exactly when he said it, so some Christian traditions have been handed on. I just want to share one of those traditions with you. Uh, John 12, verse 20. He says, there were some Greeks among those who were going to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began... To ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Then it says, Jesus answered them. Now, something's missing here. Because typically when you answer somebody, there's been a question. Here's the question. Here's the answer. All we get is the answer. We don't get the question. And maybe that's all we're supposed to have. In fact, that is all we're supposed to have. But I'm 
fascinated by at least this tradition has been handed down. And Stanley Jones is the one that puts it in one of his books. He says, the prince of Edessa, this is the story that's been told. The prince of Edessa got together a small embassy of men and says, I want you to gather the greatest teachers in the world so we can have them here in Athens. Athens was a great center of learning. I want to get the greatest teachers all over the globe right here. And I understand there's a guy down in Palestine, a guy near Jerusalem that is an extraordinary teacher named Jesus. And they said, that's right. He is great. I mean, we hear about him all the way up here. Well, I'd like to get him to spend the rest of his career in Athens. And the embassy says, I don't know. I don't know if he's going to want to do that. I mean, that's kind of not how they operate down there. I mean, they're Jewish, and Jews don't say, hey, let's just empty ourselves of that and come to Athens. I don't think he's going to do that, Prince. Prince says, well, let's go ahead then and make him a deal that he won't refuse. And here's the deal. Tell him that he'll never have to beg for money more, because I understand that's how he makes his living, is he begs for money. He asks for money. He lives off of old ladies, and I'm going to say, hey, let him Come here and we will give him a grand endowment. He'll never lack for money again. Number one. Number two, tell him instead of those yahoos he's hanging around with now. Now think about it. You know, he's got uh, prostitutes and adulterers and tax collectors. He's got two guys. I really like these guys. Always kind of imagine them in the modern era. I always imagine them with motorcycle jackets on with sons of thunder. Sons of Thunder written across the Sons of Thunder. Uh, oh, it's kind of, just kind of how I see it. And uh, he says, instead of guys like that, tell him when he comes to Athens, we'll give him the greatest graduate students, guys working on their PhDs, guys that will spread his message all over the known world. You tell him he'll have quite the intellectual legacy if he comes here. And third of all, tell him that we understand down there, they kind of tend to kill guys like you. You tell him to come here. He'll have a long life. His family and his friends will be around him on the day he dies. It'll be a great, great way to enter into the next world. And so these guys say, all right, we'll go find him, see what he says. So that's where the story picks up here. Sir, we want to see Jesus. So Jesus and Andrew came and told Jesus, there's these guys that want to see you. Jesus looks them in the eyes and answers them after they say those three things. Hey, Prince of Odessa wants to give you an academic legacy. He wants to give you a long life, and he wants to give you an endowment. You'll be a rich man. Jesus looks in their eyes, and as Stanley Jones says it, after he hears these guys say that, he goes off for a few moments and lifts up his head to heaven, and he talks to Abba. And then he comes back and says, guys, thanks for coming. I know you mean well. But the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone, and I imagine right now he's looking over his disciples. If anyone serves me, he must follow me to the cross, follow me to death, follow me where they're going to spit in my face. And where I am, he's looking right at his disciples now in my mind. Where I am, my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the father will honor 
him. And then he goes over and talks to Abba again. <laughs> he says, oh, now my soul's troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, 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 no. It's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then it says here, read it, read it. Then a voice came out of heaven. Now, the Greeks never heard something like this before. A voice came out of heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Woo! This is what I'm thinking. I'm just thinking out loud here. This is what I'm thinking. The boys from Athens said, thanks very much. We got to (laughs) go. They turn 180 degrees and they run back to Athens. And they say to the prince, nah, let's not do him. He's a little strange, this guy. That word die. I'm thinking of when I think of Jesus on the cross. I'm thinking of it when I think about Paul, the missionary. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. Now, when you die, it means you have pretty much narrowed down your possibilities. (laughs) Think about it. When you die... You've narrowed down the possibilities. And here, what's happened is saying, I put my body, my life, my career, my future into the hands of an almighty God. And so here I am, Lord. I was in a Bible study in seminary one day. And uh, <laughs> he was going around. The, the, the Dr. Coppage, Alan Coppage is my mentor. And he, Going around the story, what do you guys think of this passage? And the passage was, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And it gets around to me, and I'm always trying to say something a little different anyway. Everybody, I like it. Everybody's saying that, and it comes around to me and says, So, Matt, what do you think? He says, I don't like it. I, I don't like it. He says, Excuse me? He says, Well, it says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. I know all kinds of people say, Jesus is first, but they put what they want second, third, and fourth. So I don't like it. So I know all kinds of people live their life. Top priority is God, but the second, third, fourth priority is me. I don't like it. Well, they all kind of laughed at me and we didn't talk much about that. But I remember it was about a year later when we were in Lawrence, Kansas. Then I was studying for my Ph.D. and we had another Bible study. And we were covering that night, Matthew 6, 33. And I, I remember wrestling with it in Dr. Coppage's home the year prior to this moment. So I'm thinking, all right, let me go look up. I've never done this before. Let me go up, go look up the word first in this Greek dictionary of mine. Now, my Annalita, bless her heart, bought for me, cost about 300 bucks, and we got it on sale for 150 bucks. And, you know, back in the day, back in the olden days, that was a lot of money, you know. So anyway, uh, she bought me 13 volumes called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And so we called them, shorthand, Kittles, for the guy that edited them. Kittles. So we got these Kittles dictionaries. So I go to the, and I reach down and grab this. Now I haven't used them much, so they're kind of still new. So I, I open them up, and I open up to the P's, where it went to pro, 
proton. That's the word for first. Proton. So I look down here, and pretty much the article, and there's, there's articles for every word in the Greek. That's why it's 13 volumes. Articles for nearly every word in the Greek, and there's an article on this. It's about, I don't know, I, I think about four or five, six pages. And pretty much, I'm, I'm here to tell you, first means, you ready? First. <laughs> It's almost like, hey, idiot, what do you think? What, what do you think this is supposed to mean? So I keep reading page after page, and it's a lot of data that says first means first. Maybe it's one before two, two before three. Come on, what are you looking this up for? Uh, Bavaria is slam it shut, no help. Where I whip over one more page, and it has a last paragraph. And the last paragraph is titled Matthew 6, 33. Can I read to you what it said? The meaning here cannot be that one must first seek after God's kingdom and then after other things. Above all is the only meaning which corresponds to the central position which orientation to the kingdom of God has in the proclamation of Jesus. Indeed, proton is so exclusive here that it carries the implication of only. So at Matthew 6.33, what this brilliant word guy in the Greek New Testament said is, when you look at proton, understanding everything else Jesus said, and understanding the context, the word first here doesn't mean first, it means only. Or if you said above all, what it means is, y'all ever did uh, outlines when you're in school? Roman numeral number one. All right, Roman numeral number one is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So Roman number number one is kingdom of God and his righteousness. And number A, underneath that is money. B is sex. C is power. D is my job. And you go list, you know, and Mary, my wife, and, and, and Caleb, my firstborn, and then Joshua. And I list all my, everything in my life is underneath Roman numeral number one. And here's the point. There is no Roman numeral number two. That's what this means. And that's the life he calls us to. That's not the life that all Christians are leading. Something special has to happen in our lives for that to happen. Francis Havergal wrote this tremendous song. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands, let them move at the impulse of your love. Take my feet, let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Then it only heats up. Take my voice and let me sing always, only for my king. Take my lips, let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver, take my gold, not a mite, not anything will I withhold. Take my intellect, use every part of my brain, every power as you shall choose. Take my will, make it thine. It is no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It's going to be your royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At thy feet it's treasure store. Hey, take myself. I will be ever, only, all for thee. Can you say those three words with me? Ever, ever. only, all. all for thee. Man, that's it. That's the life he wants to lead us into. That's the life he desires for us. That's the life that we're calling you to today. Ever, only, all for thee. 
nothing held back for myself. It's all to Jesus that I surrender. It's all to him that I freely give. And the one thing you want to hold back is the very thing that can kill you spiritually. Lord, I want to be an all, all, all Christian. Can you make that happen?